dial star 611 for assistance, as your cellular phone is not authorized for use at this time. Pour de l'assistance, veuillez composer étoile 611. Vous n'avez pas le... Hello, podcast listener. Everything around you that you call life was made by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can build your own things that other people can use. The App Guy Podcasts, straight from your host, Paul the App Guy, sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. And now, Paul the App Guy. Hello and welcome to another episode of the App Guy Podcast. I'm Paul Kemp, your host, and I'm the founder of OneMob.com. And I'm just thrilled to have Jack Nutting join us today. He's the author behind some really popular books such as Beginning iPhone Development and Beginning iOS 6 Development. But really he's also been involved in the hugely popular apps uh, from Toka Boca. Now if you have kids, you'll know these apps. They are beautifully crafted and great to play. And my kids are certainly addicted to these so I've given a brief introduction, Jack, but perhaps you can tell us about yourself. Tell us your story. I know that you'll be an inspiration to many app developers out there who are either thinking of getting into app development who or who already have developed some apps and need extra inspiration. So perhaps you can take it away. Okay, well, thanks, Paul. Thanks for the nice introduction. Well, I've been working professionally as a software developer for almost 20 years now, and uh, straight out of college, I started working for a, uh, a company doing consulting on NextStep. NextStep is the operating system that was powering the Next computer, all of this created by the company that Steve Jobs had during his middle period when he was not at Apple. And of course, that's a company that Apple went on to buy, and their software became the basis of Mac OS X and later iOS. So I've been kind of following that technology chain for really almost 20 years. And so when the iOS, when uh, when the iPhone came came out and the, and the SDK came for that, it seemed like that was a natural thing for me to start looking at. Lo and behold, it also became a very popular thing to, to start looking at and being able to work with. So for me, it was kind of a natural step to start start working with that. Um, and then the that's also kind of the time that I started writing about things too. I'd been doing internally uh, mentoring and a little bit of even as a consultant doing some mentoring over many, many years in Objective-C development. And uh, for me, being able to start putting that onto paper was a lot of fun. It has been, it's been, it's a lot of work, but it's it's great fun. It's great to be in touch with developers from around the world every day who are reading my books and, and uh, working on problems. And uh, it's great. It's, it's, uh, it feels really good to be able to help people in this way. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. And, uh, you know, you've, um, first of all, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll get into a lot of that stuff that you, you mentioned, especially, you know, the fact that you chose um, Steve Jobs' uh, company Next, which would have been something that is going against the grain at the time back in, you know, the early mid-90s. But, you know, if you can tell us a, um, a success mantra, something that keeps driving you forward, you know, what, what would that be, Jack? I guess for me, the thing is that I always try and find uh, technologies and systems that I that I love, and just hang on to those and keep trying to make things work with them. Um, you know, when I was started working with Objective C in the early 1990s, people thought I was kind of out of my mind. I mean, except I obviously, you know, I was able to get work and that sort of thing. But 
other technologists, other programmers who are friends of mine, they were like, wow, why are you looking at this? You know, this seems like a dead end. What, you know, why aren't you developing Windows software? And then later in the late 90s and early 2000s, like, well, why aren't you making web applications? And just for me, I was sort of, I kind of found this technology that I loved. And of course, I've done other things too over my, of course, my career. I spent a few years working in Ruby on Rails and I've, I've worked in C Sharp and Java and C++ and all kinds of things. But I've, I've kind of had this core that I've always returned to has always been kind of my, like my native language in some sense when it comes to professional programming. And I think that is, that's kind of the, you know, it shouldn't be about chasing after where you think the, you know, where you can make a fast buck right now. Um, we only have this one life and you should spend it on doing things that really excite you and really engage you. And that's kind of what I've been, what I've been trying to follow and it's been working pretty well so far. So, yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say that uh, looking back, it seems like the most sensible thing to do is uh, to to follow um, the career of Steve Jobs and, and get involved w- with whatever he was doing at the time. But 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 back on in, in 1994, you know, Steve Jobs didn't have the respect, I guess, at the time. It certainly doesn't didn't have the legacy he does now. And, and you got involved in Objective C at the, almost from the start, uh, and so. What was it within the the coding that really you know inspired you? Well, I think that I mean I got my first taste of using Next Step probably four years before that when I started like the the place I went to college, Carleton College in Minnesota. We had uh, we had a lab room full of Next machines. There were a few of the big Next cubes and about a dozen of these Next slabs, these sort of pizza box size computers. And I had a job working as a student system administrator using these things, which were mostly, they were mostly used by actually math students who were using Mathematica for, for uh, drawing formulas and that sort of thing. Um, but I just sort of fell in love with using the device. It was so much, it was so far beyond what was available on either Mac or Windows in those days. And I, I remember that at that time trying out, trying my hand at some of the uh, Objective-C stuff that was on there because the development environment was there, it was built in. But I didn't really have any good tutorials. I didn't have anyone around me in my environment who knew this stuff. And I kind of flailed around, tried a little, a little bit, figured out a little, a little, a few of the basics I figured out, but not so much. And it was later when I was able, when I was able to get this job doing some consulting work, and suddenly found myself with some colleagues who understood this stuff because they've been working with it for a few years. And it really just it clicked for me. Within just a few days, I was like, "Wow, I I got this." That actually seems to it actually. It just made sense to me um, more than any sort of object-oriented programming I'd tried to do up to that point. This just really, really clicked. Um, so that was, I think it was because I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have any prior experience with uh, C, C++ or Smalltalk or anything that came before it. Um, this was kind of, this was the first object-oriented programming that I really sunk my teeth into. And so the fact that the syntax was what is considered a little oddball today didn't really throw me off because I didn't have anything else, you know, to go on. This is before there was Ruby or Python, before there was JavaScript, before there was Java. So there were, you know, there Objective C was at the time pretty groundbreaking in terms of features and in terms of what the language could do, and and of course in the way the the syntactically the way it's put together. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, from choosing that uh, at an early stage, and because you chose it with a passion. You can tell that you know your success is working then with um, the likes of Tokopoga. It, it comes through, but I guess you know to help us app developers who are some of us struggling to to kind of get inspired. 
you know, that's, that's what we really would like to do is learn about the failures that you've had during, um, you know, during your time as an app developer uh, working with Objective-C. Are, are there any stories you could tell us from, an, from those early days where you did actually um, you know, fail? Uh, and what were the lessons learned during those times? Well, um, let's see. I think, you know, I think that most of the times that I failed at something, I've been able to usually turn it into some kind of success anyway. Um, most of the time when you're doing development work, say if you're doing development work for a client or for your employer, uh, failures are just sort of missteps on the way to getting it right. So each time you make a mistake and deliver a product that's wrong in some way, that's going to help you actually later re realize what the right product is supposed to be anyway. Um, I would say that my my biggest failures when it comes to actually uh, delivering and, and uh, producing apps just on, say, on the, on the iOS platform is uh, perhaps failure to be prepared for success when it happens to come along. So one of my first, uh, my very first iOS app that I put out was a game called Scribattle. This is in early, early 2009. And uh, I had the great fortune that the light version of Scribattle, which was a free, free app, climbed the charts, and so it hit like the number one and number two spot in every app store of the of the, the free apps there in, for for a period of you know, a few hours essentially in, in on a particular day in, in March of 2009. And what I had not done was I hadn't really, you know, I had kind of made a game, then I made a light version of the game to see how it went. And when it started to go really well, I wasn't really, I wasn't really prepared for that. If I had been able to have, say, a second app ready to go at that point, that I could have, you know, put that app in front of all the all the new users, so so that I could sort of lead them into sales of perhaps a second app, that would have been worth gold. And that's what I did not have. I just wasn't thinking of it business wise to sort of have have kind of a pipeline of things ready to go. So by the time I by the time I came out with the second app, it was really pretty pretty much too late. So my my initial app success had kind of peaked and died off at that point. So I think that's sort of. I mean, you have to be uh, be ready to grasp opportunities that can, that can that can turn up. Um, so that's 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 one. I mean, for, I, I'd say my, my biggest the, the, the that's sort of the biggest failure that I can think of off the top of my head is kind of more a business failure than a technology failure because technology failures that that happens. I mean, everyone has every program has bugs and everyone has bad releases and. It just sort of happens, but it's a matter of trying to always continuously improve things and and uh, try and step up your game everywhere everywhere you can. That's terrific. Uh, how did you learn from that? What what did you do then? I guess following the release of Script Battle to to learn from that failure. Well, I, I think I I, I learned that um, having putting an app out is not necessarily the road to to like earning a lot of money on it. So, so from having a successful app, um, of course that, that led to other things that led, that led to, that helped me get my job at Tokoboka, I'm sure to some extent, um, that helped lead me into other kinds of work and helped I mean, everything you do that is any kind of success helps builds up, builds up your resume, builds up your sort of credentials, what you're able to accomplish. But that if you want to, uh, have a business making apps, you can't necessarily count on one app being put. You can't count on being able to put out one app and say, "This is going to be my huge hit, and I'm going to be rich from this." If you look at something like, like, um, like Rovio, I think Angry Birds was their fiftieth game or something. I was not not on iOS. Their most of the games were 
for Java mobile games, I, I believe. But you know, they didn't have any big successes until suddenly they had one big one. And <clears throat> I think similarly, the way to build build a business out of iOS is to think about the long term and think about building up a a portfolio of products. You know, whether it's games or whether it's uh, music applications, whatever it is you're working on. Um, it's typically not necessarily going to be enough to have sort of one product. You kind of have to have think about having products that can lead into other products. This is <laughs> this is great because I'm writing a few of these things down, Jack, and there's so many things that are coming into my mind. Uh, firstly, I've had an app where I've um, submitted it to the App Store and um, put in a light version and a pro version, and Apple don't like that anymore. Um, they 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 disallowed it. Um, have you got any suggestions for app developers that uh, you know, obviously that is one way of making money is what used to be one way of making money where you put in a light version and then a paid pro version. Did you got any suggestions uh, given that I think Apple probably don't like that anymore? Hmm. I guess I haven't uh, I, since I haven't I haven't submitted two apps in tandem that way in a couple of years. So I'm not really sure, but. I mean, the other way that I guess is the preferred way that Apple prefers you to do it now is to have one app that you release and that app can have in-app purchase to enable the full set of features. So you, you, you deliver one app that everyone can use and it's free and you try and set a feature set that, that is good enough, but then you can hint at more things. Say, by the way, if you want to do this also, then you know, pay this one-time fee and you get the full app. Um, I think that uh, in-app purchase has kind of a bad name in some ways. I mean, people think about these apps that, uh, you know, some in-app purchase is all about consumables. You know, you, you're buying tokens for use in a game that are going to let you do things in the game faster. But once, you're, once you've used them up, you have to buy more if you want to keep going at that speed. But I think for, a, for an application that you say, like a light version, a pro version, that is, you know, maybe it's a productivity application, or even it could also be a game where you want to have you know, when I have the basic thing to show off as as more of a trial version and the full game for a, a for a one time fee, I think that's totally acceptable and you know a reasonable use of the technology. And I think that people nowadays understand that pretty well. Um, the downside can be that actually these days it can be very often assumed that any free application you think in the back of your head, okay, it's free right now. What are they going to try and sell me later on? You know, I have a, I can have a, I, yeah, I can have a yeah. tendency to say, okay, <laughs> the freemium model is is you know people are getting very suspicious of that now, aren't they? If you, especially if you have kids. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, every time one of my kids comes and says, "Hey, Dad, look, can I buy this?" It says, you know, it's just this amount of money for the Christmas pack for this game. It's like, well, let me think about it. Come back to me tomorrow. Not <laughs> <laughs> yeah. time to think about what it is, and because you know some of those. Uh, some of those games, again, they might be a thing where it is a one-time fee for a chunk of functionality that you can keep using forever, and then that's you know that's fine, especially if the app was free to begin with. It's not much to complain about. I mean, just going back to Script Battle, Jack, because I'm interested in the Lite versus Pro. Do you, do you remember the percentage of the number of download, downloads of Pro compared to Lite? For example, were people willing to to jump up to the Pro version? Uh, you know, do you remember the percent, percentage that were? I do remember the percentage because it was absolutely miserable. <laughs> I think at the, at, the, <laughs> at the peak of Scribatolite success, when I had on the order of a couple hundred thousand downloads a day, about a half of a percent went and bought the full version. So, I mean, it was, it was something. Uh, 
you know, I, I made a little bit of money. Um, I made a, a nice little chunk of money in one month, and then I kind of took about a year to double that because uh, the this sort of long tail set in. And now these days, it's, it's dwindled down to basically nothing because most of my work has been focused on other things. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was pretty a pretty miserable percentage. I'd say actually, the, in the, in terms of raw percentages, right now it's probably a little bit better. Right now, I'm probably at about two or three percent. But we're talking such small numbers that it doesn't really matter. I have less than probably less than a hundred downloads a day of Scribato Lite. So you know, if I get thirty downloads of the free version and one purchase of the paid version, well, that's you know three percent or whatever. So that's it's better percentage wise, but much worse in terms of the the bottom line. So I think I think. Do you think from do you think from your experience that the app store people are more willing now to spend money because of um, you know I guess a suspicion about the freemium model and, and realizing that nothing really truly is free. Yeah. Do you think that people are more willing to pay for apps? I think to some extent they are. I think this is something that we definitely found within Tokoboka where we we decided from day one we are not going to have in-app purchases. Um, you know, later on, I think we, we we began to talk about maybe doing it in some cases, but it would not be consumables. It would be sort of a one-time activation. But and I'm not with the company anymore. But as far as I know, they haven't they haven't gone down that road. We decided to sort of say we're gonna we're delivering premium applications, and where premium means it costs two or three dollars. It's a pretty cheap premium. But we decided that we, instead, what we would do is we would have some free apps. So there are some Tokabook apps that are were always free. Um, and then occasionally other apps would be free for a limited amount of time to try and help draw more people into our into our sort of system. And then what we had is that, as you've seen the apps, they have a small badge in one corner of the screen when you start up. So that little badge can show you when there's a new app that comes out. So it's very it's very low key. We don't do we never did a lot of uh, sort of heavy selling of anything. There were never any pop ups of any kind that tried to get you to buy anything. It was only if you actually tapped on something. And then towards the end of the time I was there, we actually added into all the apps where a small child can't even bring up the thing to try and buy more stuff because you have to tap and then a little panel pops up that says, if you want to go to this to look at our other apps, swipe left with two fingers or up with two fingers or whatever. It's kind of randomized. And this is to sort of prevent the, the even the hint of a possibility of people accidentally buying stuff that they didn't want to buy. And, and, and so in spite of all this, in spite of the, you know, we didn't, we didn't do, we, we were always very careful about not pushing people anything they didn't want to be into and being very clear about that this, you know, we have a few free apps and mostly premium apps. Sales were great. And the sales were even great. We found on, on Android relative, especially relative to what, what I thought when we started launching Android apps, I was actually, I, the first admit, I was not a believer that this was going to go anywhere because Conventional wisdom at the time was, and I guess still is, that Android users don't buy software. But we've found that they pretty pretty well did. I mean, I'm sure we had, you know we had some help with that. Our first releases were were uh, were pushed by Amazon because we we released for the Kindle Fire first, and so we got nice placement on their on their storefront. It didn't cost us anything, so that helped, I'm sure. But you know, we we had a it was it was it works. I think I think that people are ready to buy software when it, when it is quality software. And I think that looking back on my my situation with Scribattle and Scribattle Lite, um, again, when you have the, the extremely popular free applications, you're kind of tapping into a different market. There, there's, there's the marketplace of people who want to get something for free, just for free, and that's it. And there's a marketplace of people who are willing to spend a dollar or two. And I think you have to look at 
these are two different marketplaces that have you have you only have one interface to them. You can't you know you can't tell who is who when someone downloads an app. But by trying to sort of make a message about what you're doing, you can try and come into the right place. So that if you want to make software that is going to cost something, you can't always just appeal to the to the people who just want freebies. Mm. I, I'm certainly learning a lot from this discussion and hopefully the audience are taking away some, some things as well and what I'm learning is that you know there is perhaps a new way of uh, making money on the uh, iOS store and, and especially um, into developing apps uh, and that's with brand recognition so um, delivering you know like Toka Boca delivering a, a really killer app something that people fall in love with and reinforces your brand and then having that as the catalyst for um, driving, you know, downloads of paid apps. So I know from certainly my own experience of Toka Boca, where we actually uh, loved the first game that we downloaded, and so much so that we typed in the search engine Toka Boca and found uh, all the other apps and just pretty much bought every one based on the trust that you had built up in in the first game that we played. And so I think that's probably something I'm taking away from this is that it's. Uh, the, to do with the brand and, and being honest and genuine with the app, not trying to get cheap downloads or cheap clicks or cheap, you know, get get paid with advertising, and uh, and letting the brand promote itself. Yep, I think that's you know that makes a lot of sense. That's that's the sort of uh, proposition that we tested within Tokoboka, and I think that we we proved that at least for us what we were doing it seemed to work. It made a lot of sense. And. It's wonderful to talk to a an author, an author, an app developer, especially someone who's had two hundred thousand downloads a day with their first app. I mean, did did you put any advertising on that? Did you have you had any experience with advertising um, with you know, large numbers? Um, I, I did put advertising into it, but not then. So I mean, th- again, this was this was two thousand nine in the, the beginning of two thousand nine. It was early days, and so there wasn't really. This whole system of third-party advertising wasn't—it wasn't quite as uh, prevalent as it is today. So there, I'm sure that I'm sure there were companies who would who were selling ad, selling ad space at that time, um, but I didn't come in contact with any of those until maybe a month or two later. So by the time I put out a release that had uh, ads in it, the amount of revenue that I got from that was was not very much. Um, these days, since I still have, there is still some user base that still plays the game and still see some ads. I'd say right now, um, the amount of money that I earn from ads probably is a little bit more than the amount I earn from sales. But then again, the amount I earn from sales of Scribattle are extremely low right now. So it's um, six and one and a half dozen the other. I think that um, I think that it, it can be a good a good way forward. I think that you know people are used to seeing ads in apps now um including in games you know there are so many free games that have a banner in them that i think that people don't necessarily mind um i i tried not to do that so like in in my apps in my games that i have out there with ad, with ads in them i don't have in i don't have on screen during gameplay ads i have ads that appear as interstitials so between levels an ad will pop up sometimes or when you just complete a game an ad will pop up um, rather than in the game but i mean there are a lot of ways to do it and i think uh, consumers are pretty seem to be pretty accepting of this nowadays. Um, <clears throat> but I, but again, I I unfortunately got my ads in too late. I sort of missed my potential gold mine there in terms of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
in terms of getting yeah. getting hundreds of thousands of impressions a day, I sort of missed that boat. Mm. So I'm taking away that ads are um, you know one route to uh, I guess making money from from apps, but it, it's um, six to one, half a dozen to another, and. Uh, you've uh, either got to go down the paid route and build up the honesty and, ge- and, and the, the brand recognition, or um, you know build up the, the downloads and put ad- put ads in there, but making sure that they're they're not taking away too much from the user experience. Um, do you think uh, do you think uh, Android? It's better to have ads on Android apps rather than um, iOS apps. Is, 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 I mean, we all know the myth out there that, uh, or the, this, what seems to happen is that people do say that. Uh, iOS apps are, um, you know, easier to to kind of have as paid apps, and Android it's easier to go down the route of advertising. Is that true on your on your experience? Hard to say. I, I, you know, the only apps that I've been involved with on Android at all are really Tokoboga's apps, which do not contain ads. So I don't really have any direct experience. All I know is, you know, probably the same kind of uh, vague rumors that other people have probably heard about that. Um, I think I think I don't remember. I think it was I think it was also again Rovio who was talking about it at some point that yeah they they had released Angry Birds on Android for free with with in app ads instead and they had huge amounts of downloads on Android of course but the amount of money that they actually made off of ads was nowhere near what they had made off of sales on iOS so it's sort of I think that that's a case where you know I think maybe they made the wrong judgment call. I think that maybe that on the strength of Angry Birds having done so well on iOS, they probably could have sold a lot of Angry Birds on Android instead of going the the free route at that point. So I don't really know. I, I'm not sure that I think that I think that ads on either Android or iOS will probably do similarly. And I think the question is is more: Will this app sell as a, as a premium app instead? Would it sell better or not than the ads are going to, aren't going to make me? And it's really hard to know. And you know, as you're aware, a lot of the freemium apps rely on a, a different model where the app is free, and then you they want, they're counting that a few users are going to pay again and again and again and again for these in-app consumables. And that's a different you know that's a whole different beast. And it's hard to say whether that works as well or better on Android than on iOS. I just really don't really don't know. Mm. You know, I've got an interesting question for you, Jack. Uh, if you were to sit down and meet Jack Nutting of 20 years ago, when you were just starting out, what what advice would you give to him? What would you, yeah, in terms of, yeah, well, what would you, what would you, what would that talk be like? What advice would you give to yourself of 20 years ago in regards to app development? Mm, good question. <laughs> I mean. Let me say. Let me think. What would I say to myself? I guess uh, I would want to. Uh, I would want to tell myself to. Uh, to pay a little bit more attention to the details. So especially looking, you know, looking back at the earlier parts of my career, I can certainly see situations where I kind of let myself glide through some situation that I instead of really grabbing it by the horns and saying. I'm going to tackle this and really understand this and really get better at doing this particular thing. Um, where I just kind of, I kind of let myself say, okay, I know enough about this to just get by, and that'll have to do for now. I think I would, you know, it, it, I, the the things that I've learned in the meantime, I feel like always th- there's always a, thresh, a threshold or a, 
you know, there's a ramp up to learning any, any technology, anything you want to learn. And it can be easy to go, sort of stand in front of this thing and say, I don't know how to climb this hill. But then once you eventually have to climb the hill for some reason, you look back down behind you and say, that wasn't so bad. And, and the view from up here is so much better. I should have climbed this hill a long time ago. You know, I feel like I, if, I could, if I could tell myself one thing, it would be to sort of grab on to these new technologies that you see and that you find interesting and really dig in and, and figure out how they work and how to, how to use them to your, your advantage. Well, that's great advice and I as an app developer myself I can really take on board what you're saying there uh, I do in my own experience take shortcuts and you know sometimes I am more focused on getting the app out than than actually learning the the code behind it and trying to improve the app and, and really I guess t- t- taking the easy road and then you release the app and you get a very small number of downloads and you kind of get a little bit depressed and carry on to the next app and so I can really I can really hear what you're saying there in terms of um, focusing on the detail and uh, yeah because I think when, taking we, too many shortcuts I think when you really dig in that's when you you also begin to see new new possibilities when you really understand the technology more you can say okay now I get how this works now I see how I can apply it apply this to another idea or to another project that I've been thinking about or you have it in your back pocket for the next time something similar comes up you say oh I know how to solve that. And I know more than just how to sort of, you know, apply a coat of paint on it. I know how it actually works. I know how to really make it top notch. And Jack, is, is there anything you're working on right now that's really uh, exciting you? What, what's going on you've got involved with uh, at, the, at the moment, right now? Well, right now, I, I, uh, this summertime, this past summer, I, I switched jobs. I started working for a consulting firm called ThoughtBot. Um, Thoughtbot is mostly doing Ruby on Rails programming, but also more and more iOS work, which is where I came on board. And so we have uh, we have a number of exciting things. We have a Thoughtbot has a lot of online content for learning about software development. It's a lot about web development, Ruby on Rails in particular, but also other things, web design, CSS, and whatnot. I'm working also on some iOS content, which is coming up pretty soon. I'm going to have I'm going to have a a video version of an iOS uh, developer workshop that I've been I've been doing this live workshop a few times a year for a couple of years and now I've made sort of a a video version of a big chunk of it which kind of narrows it down into a nice sort of compact thing that you can sit and watch and pause and backtrack and laugh at my mistakes and uh, so I'm pretty excited about that coming out pretty soon um, otherwise apart from that uh, well I'm, just, I'm really happy to be a ThoughtBud it's a great company um, you should check us out if you're interested in looking and if you need some work done on a on uh, building a, a system for your your new startup, then you should check us out. Apart from that, I'm also I, I have I have plans on making my own sort of um, new little product launches of my own. I'm, I'm, I've been thinking more and more about making more of my own games. So when I uh, while I was working at Tokoboka, all of my game program act- activity was on Tokoboka stuff, obviously, which was great. Um, now that I'm not there, I'm, I'm still thinking about games because games have games are what drove me into computer programming. I'll admit that, um, starting in the early '80s. So uh, I'm thinking about making, trying to make some more games, and not I'm not going to try and do anything near the scale of what Tokoboka has done, or not even probably not even approach the quality of what Tokoboka has done because I'm a one-man guy, and this is in my you know this is in my spare time really. But I want to make some. I really like kind of retro style games that, that focus on a, a core 
play element that can be a lot of fun and a lot of challenge. And so I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I've got a few things in the pipeline that I'm, I'm hoping to get out, pushed out this winter time. So we'll see how that goes. And I'm going to try and set things up a little, a little better, a little smarter so that this time, if I do manage to have some success, I can hopefully, hopefully funnel the success of one app into getting people to download another app. Or two, or three. Correct. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> and um, you mentioned ThoughtBot and uh, all the links to uh, how to get in touch with you or um, how to reference the things that you uh, mentioned during the podcast. Uh, I'm going to put on a, a link on the, the website so people in the audience can, can find out uh, about you and, and get to you. Uh, what else? The other thing I was going to ask is, um, what's the best advice you've ever received? Um, the best advice I've ever received. Well, there was a uh, a guy I used to work with at my, at my first consulting job, actually, and he was a uh, he was kind of an older fellow. He was, he was pretty near retirement at that point, I'm pretty sure. And um, I guess I, I don't have like I don't have a a pithy quote summarizing his advice but but what I always admired about this guy was that he he always kept his cool so no matter how much people were freaking about freaking out about a release coming up late or about some technology not working or about someone being unhappy about something their boss said or whatever he just had this approach of just always saying you know this seems really important today but in a month it won't seem that important at all in a year, you won't even remember it happened. So just sort of, you know, take things one step at a time, one day at a time, uh, and, you know, keep going forward until you can work through your problems. And the things that you think are huge impediments right now, you'll get past them, and you just don't worry about it so much. And so I try and, I try and sort of follow, follow that advice and, you know, deal with problems, take care of situations, but not let it consume me when things are going badly. Great advice. And for an app developer who's been involved in some really successful apps, are there any, are there any habits that you could share with the listeners here? Um, habits that really help you in your app development journey? Um, one of the big ones I would say is learn to use version control systems of some kind. <laughs> Git is the preferred thing these days. Um, and you know you don't have to become an expert in every corner of how Git works, um, but just in terms of being able to sort of look back at what you've been doing and track down where you've made a mistake. Um, you know, I, I I first started the first version control system I used was in the late '90s. Uh, this thing called CVS, which was you know kind of a it was pretty poor, um, and at the time we sort of started using Subversion control after that. And these days it's almost now get all the time and the the difference of going going from not using version control systems to using version control systems is just night and day and the more you use it the more you understand it the more you realize wow this, you can you can so easily pinpoint where things go wrong you can check in you know especially with git i love the fact that in git you can do you can do commits again and again you can do you can do 100 commits a day and there's essentially no overhead to doing it there's no there's very little drawback so anytime you feel like I've made a good chunk of progress here. You do a commit, and then you you're done with it. And you, you know, later, if you happen to screw things up, you can go back and see where you were. Um, and by by the way, Xcode these days has, I think, quite nice uh, Git integration. You can very nicely see uh, you can track changes between two versions of files. And have a nice little sort of 
uh, slider, like a time machine like slider that lets you kind of look at what you have today on the left and what you had two weeks ago on the right and just draw, sli- pull the slider up and down and see where you're at one week ago or three weeks ago or whatever. Um, just I think that, that, that for me, once I started really using that, was pretty revolutionary um, in terms of being able to know what I've done and keep track of what I've done. Yeah, because um, you know, trying to track back uh, bugs is a nightmare for all of us. And, uh, yeah, I know that when uh, you know, I know there are app developers out there. I'm sure that are even using you know things like um, uh, just uh, Word or Notes or Google Docs and um, you know co- pasting in their code and oh sure yeah, it's, it's a good 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 habit to get into. Or having multiple files, you know. This class is called ViewController.m. The previous version is called ViewController underscore old dot M. You got ViewController underscore old underscore two dot M. So, you, you know, and this is something that I used to see people doing, and I always knew it was bad. And But before using version control, it was not, it was not necessarily always clear what else am I going to do. You know, we, I worked at companies where, I'm not going to name names, and it was a long time ago, but I came into this place and their only version control was that once a day, everybody's home directory was backed up. So if you wanted to see what you did yesterday, you could open up the zip file containing yesterday's contents. And it was so, it was so primitive. Like at that point, I at least started using CVS for all my own projects and for some of the work I've been doing. And at that point, I, I, I felt like I was stepping into a, into a caveman's hut or something. Um, it's just, it's, it's just, it's so liberating because you can, you can do your you can do your work and save your changes, and you know that you're you're safe. You can always go back to what you had working a half an hour ago if you accidentally mess things up. And yeah, I, a good lesson to us, a good lesson to us all. Version control is certainly something I'll be getting more and uh, looking more into. And I know, I know that whenever I these days interact with someone, uh, say who's not a programmer, who is you know, perhaps delivering some resources for me for a project, delivering graphics or audio files or whatever. Um, you know these people, these uh, people who are more in media production side of things, don't they don't typically think in these in these lines. And so it's not uncommon that they'll you know, get an email from someone saying, "Okay, here's here's a batch of sounds, or here's the you know here's today's recording, and it's called recording And the next day they say, "Oh, I've been doing some edits. Here you go, and it's recording underscore two dot wav." And it's you know it's it's essentially it's a it's a new version of the same file. Um, it doesn't need to have a different file name, but obviously that's the way they're tracking it. Is that they make a copy on their hard drive, give it a new number, and it's 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 a very primitive way of doing things that you're totally free freed of that if you're using version control. A great habit. Um, one of the things as well. Uh, do you have any internet resources that you just are in love with? Uh, the biggest and best is probably Stack Overflow for me these days. I. Uh, I answer questions when I can, but it's uh, or when I have the time. Um, but I use it to find answers to questions a lot. And fortunately, it's such a popular site that it very often ranks highly on Google. So you don't even necessarily need to go into Stack Overflow to search for answers. You can find them right there. Um, otherwise, what else? There's a, there's a wiki that I used to write on a fair amount and be involved with. It's called CocoDev. I wonder if it's still around, cocodev.com. And this was something that was in the early days of, um, uh, is it there? It seems like it's not there. Now someone is, darn, someone's got it. 
Never mind. I won't talk about that. We had a nice, we had a nice wiki that was, uh, you know, people kind of, people kind of wrote stuff that was, uh, you know, if someone had an issue about some class, you know, it, was, it was kind of a way to have a have a discussion about the various uh, classes in Coco and how things worked and all sorts of stuff. But I won't dwell on that since probably the site is no longer there. Uh, Stack Overflow is great. Um, uh, yes, I use. I mean, I the way I use that is is through Google, as you say. I mean, it really is uh, always the pretty much the top search, uh, certainly in the first two or three. And so you don't you don't even need to be registered to look at the um, the solutions to the, most of the problems that you're kind of searching for. Yeah, exactly. There, there's lots there. Um, and then also, if you're looking, if you're not looking for a specific answer, we want to have kind of some tutorials and walkthroughs. Uh, Ray Wenderlich is a great website. Um, he started off mostly focused, I think it was mostly on games and Cocos 2D, but it's really expanded and he has a lot of writers and there's a lot of great stuff on there. So as soon as any new technology comes up from Apple, within a few weeks, these people have covered 90% of it. And there's there's a lot of material there. Um, Apple themselves have been doing a great job, I think, of documenting their new stuff. And especially nowadays that, that they release their materials from the WWDC immediately and for free to everyone who's signed up as a developer. It's utterly fantastic. Um, there's also a nice uh, a nice thing called ASCII WWDC where people have actually written down, they're actually written transcripts of all the talks from the, from this year's WWDC event. That's a very nice thing it's because it's, you know, it's text so it's searchable and you can, because sometimes you'll, you'll, have, you'll be, you know, I know usually in June and July I sit and watch all these videos and later I'm thinking, geez, who was it? You know, there was some video where someone was talking about how this this view transition thing worked, and I don't remember where it was. With ASCII WWDC, you can actually search that stuff now. That's pretty nice. Right, that is good. I mean, I've, for those listening, if you go into your uh, iOS uh, developer console, then I think the resources in the resources section, uh, there's all the videos uh, of WWDC, and I know that uh, I need to watch more of those. I've, um, I do get completely uh, engrossed in what, when I watch them, but it's making the effort, effort to get through them all because there's so many. But it's a great resource. Uh, so before we say goodbye, Jack, is, um, is there anything else that you uh, would like to to mention that you think would inspire those developers who are needing inspiration and those are thinking of getting uh, into app development? What, what, what would you say and what, any, anything else that you would bring bring to the discussion here? I guess that, you know, the main thing I would want to say is that I would hope that people who are getting into this are getting into this because they are really excited about the technology and they found something that they love to work on. You know, there's sort of, there is kind of a perception among lay people that, oh, yeah, app developers, well, those are people who are looking to make a quick buck somewhere. And I've even had this among uh, potential potential customers. I had one, one potential consult, consulting customer who said, you know, we've talked to a lot of guys and they're all these, you know, 22-year-old kids and they look like they're just making it, want to make a buck on this. Why are you developing apps, uh, apps? Like as if I was stepping into some sort of weird ghetto being involved with some shady characters, you know. But it's sort of, and, that, and I think I, I don't have that impression from people that I meet. But I think that, you know, there is an impression and I wonder where it comes from. Um, but I think, you know, as long as you're, if you're building applications because you're building something that that you want to have for yourself or you see a perceived need for this and think, man, I've got the solution to somebody's problem, um, then I think you, you really can't go wrong. I think, uh, you know, find the technology that you want to work with and uh, find the problem you want to solve and go for it. 
scratching your own itch. That's what, one thing that comes to mind when you... Um, so how, how would people get in touch with you? What's the best way of, of contacting you? Um, well, the, if you just want to see what I'm up to, you can follow me on Twitter, at Jack Nutting. Um, I also have a blog where I write, unfortunately, quite infrequently, called nuthole.com. Um, otherwise, you can drop me an email also, jacknutting at mac.com. Um, I'm always happy to talk to people and answer questions and help people out if I can, so feel free. Well, Jack, all it leaves me to say is I've been inspired from you know your story as an app developer and uh, the journey, and certainly I'm going to take on board some of the things that you mentioned during the the discussion there, and uh, it's been a very pleasant uh, uh, discussion with you so i appreciate your time and it just leaves me to say goodbye for now and um hopefully i'll, I'll have a chance to speak to you again sometime soon all right goodbye paul thanks for this thanks for today it's been great i've had a lot of fun love to talk to you again in the future at some point thank you for listening to this podcast stay tuned for the next episode and if you do have any ideas on who we should interview please send that email to info at onemob.com that's info at o-n-e-m-o-b dot com 